Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Well, hello and welcome to The Vineyard, everyone. So excited for today's message. We are going to be in Mark chapter 14. So if you want to open up there, go ahead and get your your Bible open or your device open to Mark chapter 14. Want to encourage you to follow along uh, in the Bible, because that is what we're highlighting, and, and you'll be able to kind of track along as I talk around the passage that we're going through. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series, a very long series. This is week 44 of the series, looking at the life of Jesus. It's called The Story of Jesus, and we're going through the book of Mark chapter by chapter, passage by passage, verse by verse, and just trying to get our arms around who this Jesus really was, what he really did, what it means to us today. And so if this is your first time here, don't worry, I'll catch you up. It's not, you're coming in the middle of the story, but it's the story. And so uh, I wanna encourage you to, uh, to come along today, come back next week, and you can go catch up online. Uh, during the week, if you want, everything's on our website. So there you go. Um, Jesus, whether you love him or you don't love him, uh, one thing that's not negotiable about Jesus is that he probably had a greater impact on our planet than any single human being that lived in the history of the world, to the point that we date time after him. Everything before his life was BC, everything after his life is AD. Our calendar is centered around Jesus. Uh, He's influenced the morality of our culture and our world. Uh, We use expressions and sayings that you you use every day, like going the extra mile or being the good Samaritan, and there's a bunch of others that I could, could reference that people don't even know come from Jesus, but they come from Jesus. This guy who was a, uh, a carpenter, he was, he was born in a poor little village uh, in an obscure place in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. He never went to college, never wrote anything down, never traveled more than 60 miles from his house, and, and yet he has influenced our world and changed the world. Every, I mean, from that time 2,000 years ago to now, it has his fingerprints all over it. Who was this guy? That's what part of why we're doing this series is to get our, our arms around that and, and our arms around him and figure out who he is. And Jesus comes into the scene. And as we're going to see today in the passage we're going to read, Jesus declares that it is a brand new age. There is a whole new thing happening. And he, he makes it very clear today uh, in the passage that that is the case. And then from that point on, a whole new thing happens. That's the other thing about Jesus. If he says something, it, it pretty much is true. It's, it's going to happen. Now, we find Jesus uh, today in, in what we call Holy Week or the, the, the week of Passover. It was a, a, a Jewish festival, uh, Passover, uh, in his 33rd year. Now, we follow Jesus along from the very beginning, and so this has been a three-year process, but for the last several weeks, we have been in this this week of Holy Week, starting with him riding the donkey into Jerusalem and everybody yelling, Hosanna, as he comes in into town and up to today and what we're about to see. And and that's not an accident. It is not an accident that Jesus 
uh, is in this place in the story, that we are in this place on the calendar, that we are in Holy Week, that and for what Holy Week represents, um, and that uh, what is about to transpire transpires on the day that it transpires. And so we're going to unpack all of that, but we're going to have to do a little digging to get there. So open up again, if you're not open already, to Mark chapter 14. We're going to begin in verse 12, and this is what it says. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover. Okay, let's stop there. It's important to understand what is the Passover or what he refers to, what Mark refers to as the festival of unleavened bread. Those are used interchangeably. It's, it was, the festival would be re- referred to as either the Passover or the festival of unleavened bread. It was a seven-day festival celebrated at the very beginning of the Jewish year. Um, and and it had been going on for 1,400 years when Jesus shows up. Now, in order to understand how that began 1,400 years before Jesus, we have to understand that it goes back 2,000 years before Jesus to a guy named Abram. Abram was a uh, an idol-worshipping pagan who lived in the deserts of Iraq, what is modern-day Iraq, um, and uh, kind of minding his own business. He was an older guy in, in his 70s, and God shows up to Abram and says, hey, Abram, I am going to make you into a great na- nation. And Abram looks around, and he's like, I don't have any kids. I'm 70 years old. My wife's just as old as I am. How's that going to happen? He says, just trust me. I don't know that God said, just trust me. But anyway, Abram trusts God. God gives Abram a new name. He calls him Abraham. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, And so Abraham, as the story unfolds, eventually, after many, many years, his wife does become pregnant miraculously, has a child, names him Isaac. Isaac has a has some sons, uh, names one of them Jacob, and Jacob has this experience with God where God shows up and wrestles with Jacob, and Jacob wrestles with God, and God gives Jacob a new name. It's Israel. It's where we get the name of the nation Israel. It all goes back to Jacob, and it comes down to, to Jacob through from Abraham. So a- Jacob is named Israel. Jacob has 12 sons, and they become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. So if you know anything about Israel, there are 12 tribes, and his 12 sons are the patriarchs of the 12 tribes. So one of the sons, his name's Joseph, he ends up in slavery in Egypt. And as he is in slavery, it's a fantastic story, highly, one of my favorite passages and, and, and accounts in the Bible is the story of Joseph and just how he deals with adversity and everything else. But at any rate, Joseph ends up not being in slavery in Egypt. He ends up being um, in a position of authority and power in Egypt. And a famine comes over the land and his family comes down to where he is to get food. They meet Joseph. There's a reunion. Read about it in the book of Genesis. Um, 
And, uh, and then the family moves there. About 75 of them moved to Egypt to survive this famine. They've kind of a comfortable place. Joseph's there. They have good favor because he's in a position of power and has favor with the Pharaoh. But eventually that Pharaoh dies. Eventually Joseph dies. And, uh, and the, the new Pharaoh says, hey, this is a free labor source and puts the people of Israel in slavery. And they are in slavery for 400 years years. Now, while they are in slavery, the people of Egypt kind of had a superiority complex. They believed they were the descendants of God, and so they didn't intermix or intermarry with the, uh, the Israelites. And uh, so the Israelites just grew and grew and grew as a, as a nation inside of a nation, inside of Egypt. Um, and to the point where 400 years later, they're pushing a million people, and the Pharaoh recognizes that he has a problem on his hands. And that problem is simply this. If they ever decided to rebel, they would have a situation that nobody wanted to deal with. And so in order to deal with that, he came up with a plan. He decided, well, you know, I know what we'll do. We will kill all the baby boys. Any baby, any baby Israelite boys that are born are to be killed and thrown in the river. And, uh, and so they, they enact this and they start doing that. Well, in the midst of this... A baby is born, he's named Moses, maybe you've heard of Moses, and, uh, and Moses' family hides him. They don't, obviously nobody wants their kid to be killed, but they hide him as long as they can, and then they decide that they can hide him no longer, they put him in a basket, a floating basket, put him in the river, and send him down the river, and he bumps into the princess of Egypt, um, the, the daughter of the Pharaoh. And she sees him and falls in love with him and takes him home and raises him at the palace. And so Moses grows up as an Egyptian, but somehow knows he's, he's not an Egyptian, that he's an Israelite. And as he comes into adulthood, he decides that he wants to win freedom for his people and tries to take matters into his own hands, ends up being chased out of the country by the Egyptians and hangs out in the desert, in the back half of the desert, for 40 years. And then God shows up. And when God shows up, God taps Moses, he's older in life, and says, we're going to do something about this. Now, I think there's no, I mean, 400 years of slavery, the people of God have been oppressed and abused and, and all of that. But I think when the Pharaoh starts killing babies, that's when God steps up, you know? That's when God is about to show up and do something. Because if you want to kill babies, I don't think you're going to stand very long. And so God is showing up. The people of Israel are waking up. Moses is in the right place at the right time. God shows up on the back half of the desert to Moses and says, look, Moses, you're going to go in back into Egypt, and you are going to win freedom for my people. And Moses reluctantly goes back. He talks to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, quite likely, was his, his stepbrother. You know, he was raised in the palace as, as an Egyptian. And so he would most likely would have known this Pharaoh. The Pharaoh does not receive him well. He's been gone for 40 years and he's an Israelite and they don't like the Israelites. And, and so, uh, it, it's not a great conversation. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. And we begin a series of apocalyptic plagues. It starts with blood. Every, all the water in the nation turns to blood. And they're like, yeah, this is really weird. And people are talking, maybe this is the end of the world. I mean, if the Ohio River turned to blood, I think people would start wondering, maybe, maybe this is the end. 
right? And, and then frogs emerge and they are infested with frogs from everywhere and then gnats. And, and what is happening is every time there's a, a plague, Moses goes back to the Pharaoh and he either says, no, get out of my sight, you're not getting away. Or he'll say, you can go, but you can't take anything with you. And, and, and Moses says, no deal. Well, after the frogs, it's gnats or what some theologians believe were lice that infested the Egyptians. And then flies, of course, because you got all the dead frogs and the blood and everything else. And then li their livestock die off. Then they end up with boils. Then a, a storm comes with hail and lightning. I mean, it was one of those apocalyptic storms and everything's flattened. And whatever is left is devoured by locusts. And then finally, and they had to be thinking this was the end, the world goes dark for three days. No astrological explanation for this. It was just the world went dark and they were wondering what's going on. And that's when Moses goes back to, to Pharaoh and says, all right, let my people go. God, God wants us to go off into the desert and worship him. And, and he's like, all right, you can go, but you can't take your animals. You can't take your stuff. Moses says, no deal. And God pulls Moses aside. That was the ninth plague. God pulls Moses aside and says, we're going to do one more. We're going to do one more, and this one is going to win the freedom of my people. And so if you could, keep your finger on Mark chapter 14. Turn over to Exodus chapter 12, and this is what it says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the month uh, the first month of your year. Now, I think it's interesting before we get into, and this is this, this whole thing with the plagues and especially this last plague, this 10th plague, is what Passover is all about. And, and, and so, but he starts, he starts with resetting the calendar. God starts with saying, we are going to rearrange the calendar and this is the first month. This is how you're going to start your year. From here on, as we're going to read, they're going to celebrate this every year. They're going to remember this every year. It is the way they start their year. God resets everything. It's a reset button. It's a brand new beginning for them. And isn't that just like God? Isn't that what he does? Isn't that what he does in our lives? He comes into our lives, he rearranges things, and he goes, all right, new beginning. We're going to hit the reset button, and it's going to start here. And everything before here was before. But everything after, this is the life that we live in now. That's how God works in our stories, and that's how he worked in the story of the people of Israel. Well, in verse 3, it goes on. He says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people that are there. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with each per with what each person will eat. In other words, if you got people with big appetite, you're going to need more lamb. If they don't have such a big appetite, just a little bit of lamb, but you're going to have to eat it all. He says the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. These have to be perfect lambs, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. 
Now, I think this is interesting. God has them take the lambs into their homes on the 10th day and keep them to the 14th day. That's four days that they're living with little lambs, you know, just long enough for the kids to name them, right? Uh, This has gotten very, very personal. He says, "Um, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the, the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. And do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And the reason for that was because God was setting them free and it was going to happen fast and they needed to be ready to leave quickly. He says, eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Circle that in your Bible. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And so God commanded Moses to have the people of Israel celebrate Passover, the day that God's wrath passed over the house of Israel the day that they put the blood of sacrificed lambs on their door. They applied the blood to their door and God saw the blood and he passed over, his wrath passed over the people of Israel. And God changed the calendar at, at this moment. He, 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 made, he gave them a brand new New Year's. This was the beginning of the year, a national holiday to celebrate that the liberating of the people of Israel, the intervention of God, and it is to be celebrated every year, and it is celebrated for 1,400 years from that time until when Jesus comes every year the exact same way. On the 14th, they have, a, uh, they have what's called a Seder dinner. Um, and Seder uh, simply means order or the order, and it is an exact order. There is a script to go through, and, uh, and, and they reenact this entire liberation of Israel from slavery. And the lamb, and they, to the day of Jesus, they continued to, to uh, sacrifice a lamb you know, they would, they would, they called it the festival of unleavened bread because they weren't supposed to put yeast in their bread that day. There wasn't time for it to rise because they were going to leave in haste. And so they, we call it matzah bread, but it's just, it's kind of a cracker. It's why we use a flat cracker in communion because that's what Jesus would have used that evening. 
Um, they, they would eat bitter herbs, um, and it would remind them of the bitterness of slavery. They would dip the herbs in salt water to remind them of the tears of the Egyptians because the Egyptians were devastated by this last plague. They'd eat something called harisseth, which is a fruit and nut paste uh, that's the consistency of mortar to remind them that they made bricks for 400 years. And there were four cups of wine or one cup that would be filled four times. And, um, and they would drink and bless these cups of wine throughout the meal. The first cup was the, the cup of sanctification, where God said, I will take you out of Israel. I'm going to set you apart from Israel. The second was the cup of deliverance. I'm going to save you from bondage. The third was the cup of redemption. I'm going to buy you back. I'm going to pay to get you out of slavery. And the fourth was the cup of praise. I will take you to be my people. And they would fill these, this cup four times, and they would fill it to overflowing. There would be, at a, at a good, good Israelite home, there would be wine on the table because it, it's the promise of blessing. Your cup will overflow flow. And they celebrated this the same way. Every year they would read the story, they would pray the prayers, they would reenact the story, they would remember the story. I think it's part of why 4,000 years later, the people of Israel are still the people of Israel because they never forgot their story. But in, in Jesus's day, they're celebrating. They're celebrating in Jerusalem. It became a Jerusalem-centric celebration. And they're under the boot of Rome. They have a, not, they're not in slavery, but they have an oppressor in their midst. And they longed for God to do it again. And they longed for God to set them free. This is why they shouted Hosanna when Jesus came in to town on Sunday. This is why Palm Sunday is Palm Sunday. They, here's, here's a guy who is rumored to have raised the dead, who has walked on water, who has given sight to the blind, who can heal the sick and set free the, the demonized. And, and, and he is riding into Jerusalem, not any day, but on Lamb Selection Day. Sunday was the day they would choose the Lamb. And Jesus rides in and they're yelling, Hosanna. Don't miss the symbolism there. You know, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming to the Jordan River, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think John understood better than most who Jesus was and what his mission was, but the symbolism on this holiday, and, and, and the people are missing the spiritual symbolism. They're missing the spiritual reality because they want to reenact the political reality. They want this oppression to end. They want a new government. They want, they want their freedom, and Jerusalem is packed with people. Jerusalem... Again, there, we have ranges believed to be somewhere normally between 25 and 60,000 people lived in Jerusalem proper at this time. But during Passover, Jewish people came from all over the world to Jerusalem, and it would have been pushing 3 million people in a city that's designed to hold 50,000. And it's packed. It's bumper to bumper. You can't see, see anything. And so you've got all this political sentiment. You've got all this, this 
uh, independence. This was their independence day and, and all of that. And, and the Romans, the Romans are a little bit on edge. And that's when Jesus says this in verse 13. He says, he sends two of his disciples uh, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples and he will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. Now this is an interesting instruction because, and it doesn't make sense to us with that many people, how are they gonna find one guy carrying, a, a, uh, carrying water? And it, the reality is men didn't carry water in that culture. It is a patriarchal culture and carrying water was a woman's task. So he would have stood out. And I'm sure Jesus was like, keep your head down. Don't let anybody see you. But when you spot the guy carrying water, follow him back to the house, knock on the door, talk to the guy who owns the place. But be careful because his whole family is at risk. There's a price on our heads. And so the disciples left. They went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. They get all, they, they get everything together for this celebration and for this Seder meal that they are about to share. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened. And one by one, they said, surely you don't mean me. Oh, it is one of the 12, he replied, the one who dips bread into my bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And Jesus drops a bombshell in the middle of, of a celebration. I mean... Everybody is sober at this point. Not that they were drunk, but I mean, everybody's just like, what were you, you mean betray? And I love how they respond. Now, you would thought, you would have thought that everybody would have known it was Judas because, you know, he's got like pointy horns and a little tail that comes out from under his toga and stuff. And, and he's kind of suspicious, but that's not really the case. They trusted Judas so much, they put him in charge of the money. And so nobody's thinking it's Judas. And the question they're asking, and well, it isn't, you know, it isn't John, it isn't James. No, they, they ask the question, surely it's not me. And I think these guys, for all their flaws and the mistakes they're about to make, are, are very aware of this. They're very aware of what they are capable of. I don't want to. I don't want to be the one, but tell me it's not me. Surely it's, surely it's not me. And guys, you know, that's my prayer every day with God. Surely it's not me. Like, I know what I'm capable of. I know what I'm capable of. I don't want to be the one. Well, they kind of get through that moment, and now they're headlong into the dinner and the, the ceremony. And while they're eating, it says, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Now, we look back at this in retrospect, and and understand that Jesus' body was broken the next day on the cross. They didn't have that experience yet. 
Jesus is simply going through the script of the Seder, which has been unchanged for 1,400 years. You don't mess with the script of the Seder. And he gets to the part where the, the, the master of ceremonies takes the bread, the, the matzah, and breaks it and blesses it and gives it to people to eat, and he changes the script. He says, this is my body. For 1,400 years, when they would break the matzah, they would speak of the breaking of the back of Egypt. They would speak of the splitting of the Red Sea. There was specific symbolism for this part of the dinner, and Jesus takes it and makes it his own. This is my body, and they probably all just choked on whatever they were drinking. They're like, what? This is my body broken for you. And they're just figuring this out in real time and not doing a very good job of it. Well, in verse 23, he goes on, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Theologians believe that the cup that Jesus, at this point in the dinner, the cup that Jesus would have grabbed would have been the cup of redemption, the third cup, where they would say something along these lines from speaking for God, I will redeem you with my outstretched arm. Redemption is the making things right again. It's the, but there's, there's, there's an aspect of, of purchasing something back. And Jesus says, look, I am creating a new covenant. And in this covenant, my blood is purchasing you back. This is not about getting out of slavery in Egypt. This is getting out of slavery from Satan. And it's all going to happen because of my blood, not the blood of a lamb. He takes all of tradition that has led up for 1,400 years that has led up to this point and the whole sacrificial system, and he ends it with this, is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. Now, as I've said, you don't change the order of Seder. The disciples have got to be scratching their heads, wrestling with some, some internal dissonance. What is happening here? But Jesus is crystal clear about what's happening here. This is the moment. This is when time splits. This is when the calendar gets reset again. Everything before this is BC. Everything after this is AD. This is the beginning of a whole new era. And the way that God interacts with people changes now. Looking back over the arc of, of history, back to Abraham 2,000 years before Abraham, God shows up and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to the world. 1,400 years before Jesus, he shows up to Moses and he says, Moses, I am going to make your people a priesthood. They're going to show what the world, they're going to show the world what God is like. And that's what a, a priest, priest in, 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 the best sense of the world is someone who, who helps people connect with God and shows what God is really like. 
thousand years before Jesus, David is promised by God that, that, um, that the one who is to come to make all things right, he's going to come through his family, through the, the tribe of, of Judah. Three years before this, Jesus, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came and declared himself the last sacrifice, the end of the old covenant, a beginning of a new covenant. And wherever his blood is applied, the wrath of God passes over and mercy is applied. See, Jesus fulfilled the promise God made to Abraham. Most of us are, are Gentiles. We're not Jewish. But we have inherited the promise that God made to Abraham, that blessing that was to come through Abraham's family line, that blessing that was to come through the nation of Israel, that blessing that was to come through the line of David, that one who would fulfill the sacrificial system, who would fulfill the tradition and begin a new era where God doesn't live in a temple somewhere, but he lives inside of us. And his wrath passes over us, even though we deserve it. Jesus broke the script, and in doing so, he broke history in two. And we live in the age of God's presence, of God's forgiveness, of his mercy, and his grace. This was so much more than Jesus just saying, you know, here's a piece of bread that symbolizes my broken body. And here's some, some wine that symbolizes my blood. Oh no, it's so rich and so deep and goes back so far. Well, in verse 26, after the meal, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They would have sung something from what they call the Hallel uh, psalms, uh, Psalm 113 through 118, those were the psalms that they would have. Psalms, we read them as psalms, but there was their songbook, and, and these were the psalms that they would have read at Passover. And then they go over to the Mount of Olives, and in verse 27, Jesus drops this bombshell. He says, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, <clears throat> before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. I love this part of this passage because it's Jesus declaring the reality of the symbolism that he just laid out in the passage before. See, he, he tells them, look, I'm going to go ahead of you into, uh, into, into Galilee Jesus, Jesus knew that they weren't going to run and that they were going to hide and that they were going to lose faith. He knew that. 
He doesn't say, hey, then we'll go together in victory into Galilee. He says, you're going to be hiding. You're going to be off in place. I will, I'll meet you there, acknowledging that they are about to fall short, and he is about to meet them in their shortcomings. He is, he is declaring, look, this is no longer do, 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 go through this religious ceremony and that religious ceremony to earn God's favor. He is declaring clearly, I am about to do it. It will be done. And this is a new covenant and a new age and a new era and a new beginning for humanity and a new beginning for you. You will walk in the grace of God. Because you're a human being and you're going to make mistakes. And you are going to deserve the wrath of God. But if my blood is applied to the doorposts of your life, the wrath of God will pass over. And today he offers us the exact same mercy. Today he says, this is my body. Not just a cracker, but thousands of years of meaning. And this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. A new covenant in my blood. A covenant of mercy, a covenant, covenant of relationship. Religion is over. And guys, this is more than just a ceremony that we do in church. This is the splitting of history and the grace of God showing up in our world. The announcement of God's grace and redemption for anyone who will receive it. And it's not an accident that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. It's not an accident that he grabs the cup of redemption and declares a new covenant in his blood. And it's not an accident that all of this happened on Passover when the wrath of God passed over because of the blood of a lamb. God has set up a new Passover that his wrath will pass over you and whoever has the blood of his son applied to their lives. How do we do that? Really, it's just a matter of asking Jesus to be your Lord and to be your Savior. Choosing to follow him. And as we do, through faith, the blood of, of Jesus is applied to our lives and the forgiveness of God is given freely. If you have never experienced that, I want to invite you to do that right now. Simply tell him you're in. Close your eyes wherever you are and have a moment with God and tell him I'm in. I believe and I want to be redeemed. I want to be bought back. I want to be part of your family. And Jesus, I choose to follow you right now and invite him to come and live in your heart. And that's what he will do. Now, if you're watching online, I want to encourage you to, to have communion at some point this week. Get, some, get a 
get some bread and, a, and some juice or, or wine and read Mark 14, 20 through, 22 through 24. Remember what he has done. If you're in a group or church at home group or wherever, I want to encourage you all to participate and, and take communion this week as well, and maybe even together right now. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that, that for how rich all of this is. Lord, for the way you have lined things up and for the fact that you have come to set us free, not just from physical slavery, Lord, but from spiritual bondage. And that you make that available to any and all who will come and give their lives to you. Lord, we are grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.